0: The Heathen by Jack London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. The Heathen by Jack London. I met him first in a hurricane and though we had gone through the hurricane on the same schooner, it was not until the schooner had gone to pieces under us that I first laid eyes on him. Without doubt I had seen him with the rest of the Kanaka crew on board, but I had not consciously been aware of his existence, for the Petite Jeanne was rather overcrowded. In addition to her eight or ten Kanaka seamen, her white captain, mate, and supercargo, and her six cabin passengers she sailed from Rangaroa with something like eighty-five deck passengers. Pomotans and Tahitians, men, women and children, each with a trade box, to say nothing of sleeping mats, blankets and clothes bundles. The purling season in the Pomotus was over, and all hands were returning to Tahiti. The six of us cabin passengers were Pearl-buyers, two were Americans, one was Ah-Chun, the whitest Chinese I have ever known, one was German, one was a Polish Jew, and I completed the half-dozen. It had been a prosperous season. Not one of us had cause for complaint, nor one of the eighty-five deck passengers, either. All had done well, and all were looking forward to a rest-off and a good time in Papiti. Of course, the petite Jeanne was overloaded. She was only seventy tons and she had no right to carry a tithe of the mob she had on board. Beneath her hatches she was crammed and jammed with pearl shell and copra. Even the trade room was packed full of shell. It was a miracle that the sailors could work her. There was no moving about the decks. They simply climbed back and forth along the rails. In the nighttime they walked upon the sleepers who carpeted the deck, I'll swear, too deep. Oh, and there were pigs and chickens on deck and sacks of yams, while every conceivable place was festooned with strings of drinking coconuts and bunches of bananas. On both sides, between the fore and main shrouds, guys had been stretched, just low enough for the foreboom to swing clear, and from each of these guys at least fifty bunches of bananas were suspended. It promised to be a messy passage, even if we did make it in the two or three days that would have been required if the southeast trades had been blowing fresh. But they weren't blowing fresh. After the first five hours, the trade died away in a dozen or so gasping fans. The calm continued all that night and the next day. One of those glaring, glassy calms, when the very thought of opening one's eyes to look at it is sufficient to cause a headache. The second day, a man died. An Easter Islander, one of the best divers that season in the lagoon. Smallpox, that is what it was. Though how smallpox could come on board when there had been no known cases ashore when we left Rongoroa is beyond me. There it was, though. Smallpox, a man dead, and three others down on their backs. There was nothing to be done. We could not segregate the sick, nor could we care for them. We were packed like sardines. There was nothing to do but rot or die. That is, there was nothing to do after the night that followed the first death. On that night, the mate, the supercargo, the Polish Jew, and four native divers sneaked away in the large whaleboat. They were never heard of again. In the morning, the captain promptly scuttled the remaining boats, and there we were. That day, there were two deaths. The following day, three. Then it jumped to eight. It was curious to see how we took it. The natives, for instance, fell into a condition of dumb, stolid fear. The captain—Audeuse, his name was—a Frenchman became very nervous and voluble. He actually got the twitches. He was a large, fleshy man, weighing at least two hundred pounds, and he quickly became a faithful representation of a quivering jelly mountain of fat. The German, the two Americans, and myself bought up all the Scotch whiskey and proceeded to stay drunk. The theory was beautiful. Namely, if we kept ourselves soaked in alcohol, every smallpox germ that came into contact with us would immediately be scorched to a cinder. And the theory worked, though I must confess that neither Captain Audaus or Ah were attacked by the disease either. The Frenchman did not drink at all, while Ah restricted himself to one drink daily. It was a pretty time. The sun going into northern declination was straight overhead. There was no wind except for frequent squalls which blew fiercely for from five minutes to half an hour and wound up by deluging us with rain. After each squall the awful sun would come out, drawing clouds of steam from the soaked decks. The steam was not nice. It was the vapor of death, freighted with millions and millions of germs. We always took another drink when we saw it going up from the dead and dying, and usually we took two or three more drinks, mixing them exceptionally stiff. Also, we made it a rule to take an additional several each time they hove the dead over to the sharks that swarmed about us. We had a week of it, and then the whiskey gave out. It is just as well or I shouldn't be alive now. It took a sober man to pull through what followed, as you will see when I mention the little fact that only two men did pull through. The other man was a heathen—at least, that was what I heard Captain Aldous call him at the moment I first became aware of the heathen's existence—but to come back. It was at the end of the week, with the whiskey gone and the pearl buyers sober, that I happened to glance at the barometer that hung in the cabin companionway. Its normal register in the Palmotis was twenty-nine-ninety and it was even quite customary to see it vacillate between twenty nine eighty five and thirty or even thirty oh five but to see it as i saw it down to twenty nine sixty two was sufficient to sober the most drunken pearl buyer that ever incinerated smallpox microbes in scotch whiskey i called captain Aldous's attention to it only to be informed that he had watched it going down for several hours there was little to do but that little he did very well considering the circumstances He took off the light sails, shortened right down to storm canvas, spread lifelines, and waited for the wind. His mistake lay in what he did after the wind came. He hove to on the port tack, which was the right thing to do south of the equator, if—and there was the rub—if one were not in the direct path of a hurricane. We were in the direct path. I could see that by the steady increase of the wind and the equally steady fall of the barometer. I wanted him to turn and run with the wind on the port quarter until the barometer ceased falling, and then to heave to. We argued till he was reduced to hysteria, but budge he would not. The worst of it was that I could not get the rest of the pearl buyers to back me up. Who was I, anyway, to know more about the sea and its ways than a properly qualified captain was what was in their minds, I knew. Of course, the sea rose with the wind frightfully and I shall never forget the first three seas the petite Jeanne shipped. She had fallen off as vessels do at times when hove to, and the first sea made a clean breach. The lifelines were only for the strong and well, and little good were they even for them when the women and children, the bananas and coconuts, the pigs and trade boxes, the sick and dying were swept along in a solid, screeching, groaning mass. The second sea filled the petite Jeanne's decks flush with the rails. And as her stern sank down and her bow tossed skyward, all the miserable dunnage of life and luggage poured aft. It was a human torrent. They came head first, feet first, sideways, rolling over and over, twisting, squirming, writhing, and crumpled up. Now and again one caught a grip on a stanchion or a rope, but the weight of the bodies behind tore such grips loose. One man I noticed fetch up head-on and square-on with a starboard bit. His head cracked like an egg. I saw what was coming, sprang on top of the cabin and from there into the mainsail itself. Achoon and one of the Americans tried to follow me, but I was one jump ahead of them. The American was swept away and over the stern like a piece of chaff. Achoon caught a spoke of the wheel and swung in behind it, but a strapping Ratatangan Vaheen, woman, she must have weighed two hundred and fifty, brought up against him and got an arm around his neck. He clutched the Kanaka steersman with the other hand, and just at that moment the schooner flung down to starboard. The rush of bodies in sea that was coming along the port runway between the cabin and the rail turned abruptly and poured to starboard. Away they went, Vaheen, Achun, and steersman. And I swear I saw Achun grin at me with philosophic resignation as he cleared the rail and went under. The third sea the biggest of the three, did not do so much damage. By the time it arrived, nearly everybody was in the rigging. On deck, perhaps a dozen gasping, half-drowned and half-stunned wretches were rolling about or attempting to crawl into safety. They went by the board, as did the wreckage of the two remaining boats. The other pearl buyers and myself between seas managed to get about fifteen women and children into the cabin and battened down. Little good it did the poor creatures in the end. Wind, Out of all my experience, I could not have believed it possible for the wind to blow as it did. There is no describing it. How can one describe a nightmare? It was the same way with that wind. It tore the clothes off our bodies. I say, tore them off, and I mean it. I am not asking you to believe it. I am merely telling something that I saw and felt. There are times when I do not believe it myself. I went through it, and that is enough." One could not face that wind and live. It was a monstrous thing, and the most monstrous thing about it was that it increased and continued to increase. Imagine countless millions and billions of tons of sand. Imagine this sand tearing along at ninety, a hundred, a hundred and twenty, or any other number of miles per hour. Imagine further this sand to be invisible, impalpable, yet to retain all the weight and density of sand. Do all this, and you may get a vague inkling of what that wind was like. Perhaps sand is not the right comparison. Consider it mud—invisible, impalpable, but heavy as mud. Nay, it goes beyond that. Consider every molecule of air to be a mud-bank in itself. Then try to imagine the multitudinous impact of mud-banks. No, it is beyond me. Language may be adequate to express the ordinary conditions of life, but it cannot possibly express any of the conditions of so enormous a blast of wind. It would have been better had I stuck by my original intention of not attempting a description. I will say this much. The sea which had risen at first was beaten down by that wind. More, it seemed as if the whole ocean had been sucked up in the maw of the hurricane and hurled on through that portion of space which previously had been occupied by the air. Of course, our canvas had gone long before, but Captain Aldous had on the Petit Jeanne something I had never before seen on a South Sea schooner—a sea-anchor. It was a conical canvas bag, the mouth of which was kept open by a huge hoop of iron. The sea-anchor was bridled something like a kite so that it bit into the water as a kite bites into the air, but with a difference. The sea-anchor remained just under the surface of the ocean in a perpendicular position. A long line, in turn, connected it with the schooner. As a result, the Petit jean rode bow on to the wind and to what sea there was. The situation really would have been favorable had we not been in the path of the storm. True, the wind itself tore our canvas out of the gaskets, jerked out our topmasts, and made a raffle of our running gear. But still, we would have come through nicely had we not been square in front of the advancing storm center. That was what fixed us. I was in a state of stunned, numbed, paralyzed collapse from enduring the impact of the wind, and I think I was just about ready to give up and die when the center smote us. The blow we received was an absolute lull. There was not a breath of air. The effect on one was sickening. Remember that for hours we had been at terrific muscular tension, withstanding the awful pressure of that wind, and then suddenly the pressure was removed. I know that I felt as though I was about to expand, to fly apart in all directions. It seemed as if every atom composing my body was repelling every other atom and was on the verge of rushing off irresistibly into space. But that lasted only for a moment. Destruction was upon us. In the absence of the wind and pressure, the sea rose. It jumped, it leaped, it soared straight toward the clouds remember, from every point of the compass, that inconceivable wind was blowing in toward the center of calm. The result was that the seas sprang up from every point to the compass. There was no wind to check them. They popped up like corks released from the bottom of a pail of water. There was no system to them, no stability. They were hollow, maniacal seas. They were eighty feet high, at the least. They were not seas at all. They resembled no sea a man has ever seen. They were splashes, monstrous splashes, that is all. Splashes that were eighty feet high. Eighty? They were more than eighty. They went over our mastheads. They were spouts, explosions. They were drunken. They fell anywhere, anyhow. They jostled one another. They collided. They rushed together and collapsed upon one another, or fell apart like a thousand waterfalls all at once. It was no ocean any man had ever dreamed of, that Hurricane Center. It was confusion thrice confounded. It was anarchy. It was a hell-pit of seawater, gone mad. The petite Jeanne? I don't know. The heathen told me afterward that he did not know. She was literally torn apart, ripped wide open, beaten into a pulp, smashed into kindling wood, annihilated. When I came to, I was in the water, swimming automatically, though I was about two-thirds drowned. How I got there, I had no recollection. I remembered seeing the petite Jeanne fly to pieces at what must have been the instant that my own consciousness was buffeted out of me. But there I was, with nothing to do but make the best of it. And in that best there was little promise. The wind was blowing again. The sea was much smaller and more regular, and I knew that I had passed through the center. Fortunately, there were no sharks about. The hurricane had dissipated the ravenous horde that had surrounded the Death Ship and fed off of the dead. It was about midday when the Petite Jean went to pieces, and it must have been two hours afterward when I picked up with one of her hatch covers. Thick rain was driving at the time, and it was the merest chance that flung me and the hatch cover together. A short length of line was trailing from the rope handle, and I knew that I was good for a day, at least, if the sharks did not return. Three hours later, possibly a little longer, sticking close to the cover, and with closed eyes concentrating my whole soul upon the task of breathing in enough air to keep me going, and at the same time of avoiding breathing in enough water to drown me, it seemed to me that I heard voices. The rain had ceased, and the wind and sea were easing marvelously. Not twenty feet away from me, on another hatch cover, were Captain Aldous and the heathen. They were fighting over the possession of the cover, at least the Frenchman was—'Bien Noir!' I heard him scream, and at the same time I saw him kick the kanaka. Now, Captain Outhouse had lost all his clothes, except his shoes, and they were heavy brogans. It was a cruel blow, for it caught the heathen on the mouth and the point of the chin, half stunning him. I looked for him to retaliate, but he contented himself with swimming about forlornly a safe ten feet away. Whenever a fling of the sea threw him closer, the Frenchman hanging on with his hands kicked out at him with both feet. Also, at the moment of delivering each kick, he called the Kanaka a black heathen. For two centimes I'd come over there and drown you, you white beast! I yelled. The only reason I did not go was that I felt too tired. The very thought of the effort to swim over was nauseating. So I called to the Kanaka to come to me, and proceeded to share the hatch-cover with him. Otuo, he told me his name was. Also, he told me that he was a native of Bora Bora, the most westerly of the Society group. As I learned afterward, he had got the hatch-cover first, and after some time, encountering Captain Audaus, had offered to share it with him, and had been kicked off for his pains. And that was how Otuo and I first came together. He was no fighter. He was all sweetness and gentleness, a love-creature, though he stood nearly six feet tall and was muscled like a gladiator. He was no fighter, but he was also no coward. He had the heart of a lion, and in the years that followed I have seen him run risks that I would never dream of taking. What I mean is that while he was no fighter, and while he always avoided precipitating a row, he never ran away from trouble when it started. And it was where shoal when once Otuo went into action. I shall never forget what he did to Bill King. It occurred in German Samoa. Bill King was hailed the champion heavyweight of the American Navy. He was a big brute of a man, a veritable gorilla, one of those hard-hitting, rough-housing chaps, and clever with his fists as well. He picked the quarrel, and he kicked Otuo twice and struck him once before Otuo felt it necessary to fight. I don't think it lasted four minutes, at the end of which time Bill King was the unhappy possessor of four broken ribs, a broken forearm, and a dislocated shoulder blade. Otuo knew nothing of scientific boxing. He was merely a manhandler. And Bill King was something like three months in recovering from the bit of manhandling he received that afternoon on Appiah Beach. But I am running ahead of my yarn. We shared the hatch cover between us we took turn and turn about, one lying flat on the cover and resting while the other submerged to the neck, merely held on with his hands. For two days and nights, spell and spell, on the cover and in the water we drifted over the ocean. Toward the last I was delirious most of the time, and there were times, too, when I heard Otuo babbling and raving in his native tongue. Our continuous immersion prevented us from dying of thirst, though the sea water and the sunshine gave us the prettiest imaginable combination of salt-prickle and sunburn. In the end, Otuo saved my life, for I came to lying on the beach twenty feet from the water, sheltered from the sun by a couple of coconut leaves. No one but Otuo could have dragged me there and stuck up the leaves for shade. He was lying beside me. I went off again and the next time I came around, it was a cool and starry night, and Otuo was pressing a drinking coconut to my lips. We were the sole survivors of the Petite Jeanne. Captain Audaus must have succumbed to exhaustion, for several days later his hatch cover drifted ashore without him. Otuo and I lived with the natives of the atoll for a week, when we were rescued by a French cruiser and taken to Tahiti. In the meantime, however, we had performed the ceremony of exchanging names. In the South Seas such a ceremony binds two men closer together than blood-brothership. The initiative had been mine, and Otuo was rapturously delighted when I suggested it. It is well," he said in Tahitian, for we have been mates together for two days on the lips of death. But death stuttered, I smiled. It was a brave deed you did, master, he replied, and death was not vile enough to speak. Why do you master me? I demanded, with a show of hurt feelings. We have exchanged names. To you I am Otuo, to me you are Charlie, and between you and me, forever and forever, you shall be Charlie and I shall be Otuo. It is the way of the custom. And when we die, if it does happen that we live again somewhere beyond the stars and the sky, still, shall you be Charlie to me, and I, Otuo, to you. Yes, master he answered, his eyes luminous and soft with joy. There you go! I cried indignantly. What does it matter what my lips utter? he argued. They are only my lips. But I shall think Otuo always. Whenever I think of myself I shall think of you. Whenever men call me by name I shall think of you. And beyond the sky and beyond the stars always and forever you shall be Otuo to me. Is it well, master? I hid my smile and answered that it was well. We parted at Papiti. I remained ashore to recuperate and he went on in a cutter to his own island Bora Bora. Six weeks later he was back. I was surprised, for he had told me of his wife and said that he was returning to her and would give over sailing on far voyages. "'Where do you go, master?' he asked after our first greeting. I shrugged my shoulders. It was a hard question. "'All the world!' was my answer. All the world, all the sea, and all the islands that are in the sea. I will go with you, he said simply. My wife is dead. I never had a brother, but from what I have seen of other men's brothers, I doubt if any man ever had a brother that was to him what Otuo was to me. He was brother, and father, and mother as well. And this I know. I lived a straighter and better man because of Otuo. I cared little for other men, but I had to live straight in Otuo's eyes. Because of him I dared not tarnish myself. He made me his ideal, compounding me, I fear, chiefly out of his own love and worship. And there were times when I stood close to the steep pitch of Hades and would have taken the plunge had not the thought of Otuo restrained me. His pride in me entered into me until it became one of the major rules in my personal code to do nothing that would diminish that pride of his. Naturally, I did not learn right away what his feelings were toward me. He never criticized, never censured, and slowly the exalted place I held in his eyes dawned upon me, and slowly I grew to comprehend the hurt I could inflict upon him by being anything less than my best. For seventeen years we were together. For seventeen years he was at my shoulder watching while I slept, nursing me through fever and wounds, I and receiving wounds in fighting for me. He signed on the same ships with me, and together we ranged the Pacific from Hawaii to Sydney Head and from Torres Straits to the Galapagos. We blackbirded from the New Hebrides and the Line Islands over to the westward clear through Louisiates, New Britain, New Ireland, and New Hanover. We were wrecked three times, in the Gilberts, in the Santa Cruz group, and in the Fijis, and we traded and solved wherever a dollar promised in the way of pearl and pearl-shell, copra, bêche-de-mer, hawkbill, turtle-shell, and stranded wrecks. It began in Papiti, immediately after his announcement that he was going with me over all the sea and the islands in the midst thereof. There was a club in those days in Papiti where the pearlers, traders, captains, and riffraff of South Sea adventurers foregathered. The play ran high, and the drink ran high, and I am very much afraid that I kept later hours than were becoming or proper. No matter what the hour was, when I left the club, there was Otuo waiting to see me safely home. At first I smiled. Next I chided him. Then I told him flatly that I stood in need of no wet-nursing. After that, I did not see him when I came out of the club. Quite by accident, a week or so later, I discovered that he still saw me home, lurking across the street among the shadows of the mango-trees. What could I do? I know what I did do. Insensibly, I began to keep better hours. On wet and stormy nights, in the thick of the folly and the fun, the thought would persist in coming to me of Otuo keeping his dreary vigil under the dripping mangoes. Truly, he had made a better man of me. Yet he was not straight-laced, and he knew nothing of common Christian morality. All the people on Bora Bora were Christians, but he was a heathen, the only unbeliever on the island, a gross materialist who believed that when he died, he was dead. He believed merely in fair play and square dealing. Petty meanness in his code was almost as serious as wanton homicide and I do believe that he respected a murderer more than a man given to small practices. Otuo had my welfare always at heart. He thought ahead for me, weighed my plans, and took a greater interest in them than I did myself. At first, when I was unaware of this interest of his in my affairs, he had to divine my intentions. As, for instance, at Papiti, when I contemplated going partners with a knavish fellow-countryman on a guano venture. I did not know he was a knave, nor did any white man in Papiti. Neither did Otuo know, but he saw how thick we were getting and found out for me, and without my asking him. Native sailors from the ends of the seas knock about on the beach in Tahiti. And Otuo, suspicious merely, went among them till he had gathered sufficient data to justify his suspicions. Oh, it was a nice history, that of Randolph Waters. I couldn't believe it when Otuo first narrated it. But when I sheeted it home to Wooders, he gave in without a murmur and got away on the first steamer to Auckland. At first, I am free to confess, I couldn't help but resenting Otuo's poking his nose into my business. But I knew that he was wholly unselfish, and soon I had to acknowledge his wisdom and discretion. He had his eyes open always to my main chance, and he was both keen-sighted and far-sighted. In time he became my counselor until he knew more of my business than I did myself. He really had my interest at heart more than I did. Mine was the magnificent carelessness of youth, for I preferred romance to dollars and adventure to a comfortable billet with all night in. So it was well that I had someone to look out for me. I know that if it had not been for Otuo, I should not be here today. Of numerous instances, let me give one. I had had some experience in blackbirding before I went pearling in the Palmotis. Otuo and I were in Samoa. We really were on the beach and hard aground, when my chance came to go as recruiter on a blackbird brig. Otuo signed on before the mast, and for the next half-dozen years, in as many ships, we knocked about the wildest portions of Melanesia. Otuo saw to it that he always pulled stroke oar in my boat. Our custom in recruiting labor was to land the recruiter on the beach. The covering boat always lay on its oars several hundred feet offshore, while the recruiter's boat, also lying on its oars, kept afloat on the edge of the beach. When I landed with my trade goods, leaving my steering sweep a-peak, Otuo left his stroke position and came into the stern-sheets, where a Winchester lay ready to hand under a flap of canvas. The boat's crew was also armed the Sniders concealed under canvas flaps that ran the length of the gun walls. While I was busy arguing and persuading the woolly-headed cannibals to come and labor on the Queensland plantations, Otuo kept watch. And often and often his low voice warned me of suspicious actions and impending treachery. Sometimes it was the quick shot from his rifle, knocking a savage over, that was the first warning I received and in my rush to the boat, his hand was always there to jerk me flying aboard. Once, I remember, on Santa Ana, the boat grounded just as the trouble began. The covering-boat was dashing to our assistance, but the several score of savages would have wiped us out before it arrived. Otuo took a flying leap ashore, dug both hands into the trade goods and scattered tobacco, beads, tomahawks, knives and calicoes in all directions. This was too much for the woolly heads. While they scrambled for the treasure, the boat was shoved clear, and we were aboard and forty feet away, and I got thirty recruits off that very beach in the next four hours. The particular instance I have in mind was on Malaita, the most savage island in the easterly Solomons. The natives had been remarkably friendly, and how were we to know that the whole village had been taking up a collection for over two years with which to buy a white man's head? The beggars are all headhunters, and they especially esteem a white man's head. The fellow who captured the head would receive the whole collection. As I say, they appeared very friendly, and on this day I was fully a hundred yards down the beach from the boat. Otuo had cautioned me, and as usual, when I did not heed him, I came to grief. The first I knew, a cloud of spears sailed out of the mangrove swamp at me. At least a dozen were sticking into me. I started to run, but tripped over one that was fast in my calf and went down. The woolly heads made a run for me, each with a long-handled fantail tomahawk with which to hack off my head. They were so eager for the prize that they got in one another's way. In the confusion I avoided several hacks by throwing myself right and left on the sand. Then Otuo arrived. Otuo the manhandler. In some way he had got hold of a heavy war-club, and at close quarters it was a far more efficient weapon than a rifle. He was right in the thick of them, so that they could not spear him, while their tomahawks seemed worse than useless. He was fighting for me, and he was in a true berserker rage. The way he handled that club was amazing. Their skulls squashed like overripe oranges. It was not until he had driven them back, picked me up in his arms, and started to run that he received his first wounds. He arrived in the boat with four spear-thrusts, got his Winchester, and with it got a man for every shot. Then we pulled aboard the schooner and doctored up. Seventeen years we were together. He made me. I should today be a supercargo, a recruiter, or a memory, if it had not been for him. You spend your money and you go out and get more, he said one day. It is easy to get money now." But when you get old, your money will be spent and you will not be able to go out and get more. I know, Master. I have studied the ways of white men. On the beaches are many old men, who were young once and who could get money just like you. Now they are old and they have nothing, and they wait about for the young men like you to come ashore and buy drinks for them. The black boy is a slave on the plantations. He gets twenty dollars a year. He works hard. The overseer does not work hard. He rides a horse and watches the black boy work. He gets twelve hundred dollars a year. I am a sailor on the schooner. I get fifteen dollars a month. That is because I am a good sailor. I work hard. The captain has a double awning and drinks beer out of a long bottle. I have never seen him haul a rope or pull an oar. He gets one hundred and fifty dollars a month. I am a sailor. He is a navigator. master. I think it would be very good for you to know navigation." Otuo spurred me on to it. He sailed with me as second mate on my first schooner, and he was far prouder of my command than I was myself. Later on it was, The captain is well paid, master, but the ship is in his keeping, and he is never free from the burden. It is the owner who is better paid, the owner who sits ashore with many servants and turns his money over true, but a schooner costs $5,000. An old schooner at that," I objected. I should be an old man before I saved $5,000. There be short ways for white men to make money, he went on, pointing ashore at the coconut-fringed beach. We were in the Solomons at the time, picking up a cargo of ivory nuts along the east coast of Guadalcanar. Between this river-mouth and the next it is two miles, he said. The flat land runs far back. It is worth nothing now. Next year—who knows—or the year after. Men will pay much money for that land. The anchorage is good. Big steamers can lie close up. You can buy the land four miles deep from the old chief for ten thousand sticks of tobacco, ten bottles of square-face and a Snyder, which will cost you maybe one hundred dollars. Then you place the deed with the commissioner and the next year or the year after you sell and become the owner of a ship. I followed his lead and his words came true, though in three years instead of two. Next came the grasslands deal on Guadalcanar, twenty thousand acres, on a governmental nine hundred and ninety-nine years lease at a nominal sum. I owned the lease for precisely ninety days when I sold it to a company for half a fortune. Always it was Otuo who looked ahead and saw the opportunity. He was responsible for the solving of the Doncaster, brought in at auction for a hundred pounds and clearing three thousand after every expense was paid. He led me into the Savai plantation and the cocoa venture on Upalu. We did not go seafaring so much as in the old days. I was too well off. I married and my standard of living rose, but Otuo remained the same old-time Otuo moving about the house or trailing through the office, his wooden pipe in his mouth, a shilling undershirt on his back, and a four-shilling lava-lava about his loins. I could not get him to spend money. There was no way of repaying him except with love, and God knows he got that in full measure from all of us. The children worshipped him, and if he had been spoilable my wife would surely have been his undoing. The children! He really was the one who showed them the way of their feet in the world practical. He began by teaching them to walk. He sat up with them when they were sick. One by one, when they were scarcely toddlers, he took them down to the lagoon and made them into amphibians. He taught them more than I ever knew of the habits of fish and the ways of catching them. In the bush it was the same thing. At seven Tommy knew more woodcraft than I ever dreamed existed at six mary went over the sliding rock without a quiver and i have seen strong men balk at that feat and when frank had just turned six he could bring up shillings from the bottom in three fathoms my people in bora bora do not like heathen they are all christians and i do not like bora bora christians he said one day, when I, with the idea of getting him to spend some of the money that was rightfully his, had been trying to persuade him to make a visit to his own island in one of our schooners. A special voyage which I had hoped to make a record-breaker in the matter of prodigal expense. I say, one of our schooners, though legally at the time they belonged to me. I struggled long with him to enter into partnership. We have been partners from the day the Petit Chalm went down, he said at last. But if your heart so wishes, then shall we become partners by law. I have no work to do, yet are my expenses large. I drink and eat and smoke in plenty. It costs much, I know. I do not pay for the playing of billiards, for I play on your table, but still the money goes. Fishing on the reef is only a rich man's pleasure. It is shocking the cost of hooks and cotton line. Yes, it is necessary that we be partners by law. I need the money. I shall get it from the head clerk in the office." So the papers were made out and recorded. A year later I was compelled to complain. "'Charlie,' said I, "'you are a wicked old fraud, a miserly skinflint, a miserable land crab. Behold, your share for the year in all our partnership has been thousands of dollars. The head clerk has given me this paper. It says that in the year you have drawn just eighty-seven dollars and twenty cents. Is there any owing me?" he asked anxiously. I tell you, thousands and thousands, I answered. His face brightened as with an immense relief. It is well, he said. See that the head clerk keeps good account of it. When I want it, I shall want it, and there must not be a cent missing. If there is, he added fiercely after a pause, it must come out of the clerk's wages. And all the time, as I afterward learned, his will, drawn up by Carruthers and making me sole beneficiary, lay in the American Consul's safe. But the end came, as the end must come to all human associations. It occurred in the Solomons, where our wildest work had been done in the wild young days, and where we were once more principally on holiday—incidentally, to look after our holdings on Florida Island, and to look over the pearling possibilities of the Maboli Pass. We were lying at Tsavo, having run into trade for curios. Now Savo is alive with sharks. The custom of the woolly heads of burying their dead in the sea did not tend to discourage the sharks from making the adjacent waters a hangout. It was my luck to be coming aboard in a tiny, overloaded native canoe when the thing capsized. There were four woolly heads and myself in it, or rather hanging to it. The schooner was a hundred yards away. I was just hailing for a boat when one of the woolly heads began to scream. Holding on to the end of the canoe, both he and that portion of the canoe were dragged under several times. Then he loosed his clutch and disappeared. A shark had got him. The three remaining savages tried to climb out of the water upon the bottom of the canoe. I yelled and struck at the nearest with my fist, but it was no use. They were in a blind funk. The canoe could barely have supported one of them. Under the three it upended and rolled sideways, throwing them back into the water. I abandoned the canoe and started to swim toward the schooner, expecting to be picked up by the boat before I got there. One of the savages elected to come with me and we swam along silently, side by side, now and again putting our faces into the water and peering about for sharks. The screams of the man who stayed by the canoe informed us that he was taken. I was peering into the water when I saw a big shark pass directly beneath me. He was fully sixteen feet in length. I saw the whole thing. He got the woolly head by the middle, and away he went, the poor devil, head, shoulders, and arms out of the water all the time, screeching in a heartrending way. He was carried along in this fashion for several hundred feet when he was dragged beneath the surface. I swam doggedly on, hoping that that was the last unattached shark. But there was another. Whether it was the one that had attacked the natives earlier, or whether it was one that had made a good meal elsewhere, I do not know. At any rate, he was not in such haste as the others. I could not swim so rapidly now, for a large part of my effort was devoted to keeping track of him. I was watching him when he made his first attack. By good luck, I got both hands on his nose, and though his momentum nearly shoved me under, I managed to keep him off. He veered clear and began circling about again. A second time I escaped him by the same maneuver. The third rush was a miss on both sides. He sheered at the moment my hands should have landed on his nose, but his sandpaper hide I had on a sleeveless undershirt scraped the skin off one arm from elbow to shoulder. By this time I was played out and gave up hope. The schooner was still two hundred feet away. My face was in the water and I was watching him maneuver for another attempt when I saw a brown body pass between us. It was Otuo swim for the schooner, master," he said, and he spoke gaily as though the affair were a mere lark. I know sharks. The shark is my brother. I obeyed, swimming slowly on, while Otuo swam about me, keeping always between me and the shark, foiling his rushes and encouraging me. The davit-tackle carried away, and they are rigging the falls," he explained a minute or so later, and then went under to head off another attack. By the time the schooner was thirty feet away, I was about done for. I could scarcely move. They were heaving lines at us from on board, but they continually fell short. The shark, finding that it was receiving no hurt, had become bolder. Several times it nearly got me, but each time Otuo was there just the moment before it was too late. Of course, Otuo could have saved himself any time, but he stuck by me. Goodbye, Charlie. I'm finished!' I just managed to gasp. I knew that the end had come and that the next moment I should throw up my hands and go down. But Otuo laughed in my face, saying, I will show you a new trick. I will make that shark feel sick. He dropped in behind me, where the shark was preparing to come at me. A little more to the left, he next called out. There is a line there, on the water. To the left, Master, to the left! I changed my course and struck out blindly. I was by that time barely conscious. As my hand closed on the line I heard an exclamation from on board. I turned and looked. There was no sign of Otuo. The next instant he broke the surface, both hands were off at the wrists, the stumps spouting blood. Otuo! he called softly, and I could see in his gaze the love that thrilled in his voice. Then, and only then, at the very last of all our years, he called me by that name. Goodbye, bye Otuo! he called. Then he was dragged under, and I was hauled aboard, where I fainted in the captain's arms. And so passed Otuo, who saved me and made me a man, and who saved me in the end. We met in the maw of a hurricane and parted in the maw of a shark, with seventeen intervening years of comradeship, the like of which, I dare to assert, has never befallen two men, the one brown and the other white. If Jehovah be from his high place watching every sparrow fall, not least in his kingdom shall be Otuo, the one heathen of Bora Bora. End of the heathen by Jack London.